In 2016, I traveled through Myanmar on a solo trip that turned out to be not just breathtakingly beautiful, and I'm talking hot air balloons, studded sunrises over thousands of pagodas, stupas, and temples of Bagan, and sunsets over Inlay Lake that remain seared in my memory, but wonderfully enriching too. I learned so much about local culture, food, traditions, the way of life, and just human nature, exploring in such a free way, talking to the super friendly people as best I could, and even going into someone's very modest home for cookies and a massage from her grandma. At one point, my ankle suddenly swelled to the size of my thigh, and a sweet member of my hotel's staff drove me in his car to a local clinic and ensured I was treated well. I found a local guide to take me through the gleaming gold Shui Dagan Pagoda in the busy city of Yangon, where he offered such interesting insights into the Buddhist practices and beliefs there. I left with so many wonderful stories and interactions, and tons of photographs I still treasure. I couldn't wait to tell people about it and write about Myanmar. It sounds like you had such a magical time, though I'm sensing a but coming. You're right. Little did I know that my trip coincided with the start of a genocide of the Rohingya people. Within months of my return, the international media began reporting on this persecuted minority and the horrors being perpetrated against them in Western Myanmar. I had a really difficult time squaring my experience with this news. The people I met were just so lovely, not the type of people who seemed like they would readily endorse a genocide. I'd imagine it brought up a bunch of questions. Definitely. Like, should I now feel badly about having gone there? Was me traveling there somehow bolstering or supporting the government's actions? And what's the responsibility of a traveler to follow current events and make ethical choices about where they choose to go? Or what values you can use to make those decisions for yourself? I think we can all agree that visiting a country where you are aware that a genocide is occurring, unlike you, Catherine, is not something any of us would choose to do. But what about a country with a prosperous, peaceful, and healthy population that doesn't hold free elections? Or a country that actively promotes sustainable tourism and development, but which doesn't have a free, independent press? These are the kinds of things we constantly have to ask ourselves as travel writers. Should we visit, and what's more, promote destinations that might be problematic for one reason or another? And what kinds of questions do we need to ask when making those judgment calls? Welcome to Conscious Traveler. We're your hosts, Eric and Catherine, and we're excited to dive into the world of meaningful, mind-opening travel with you. With our stories and interviews, we hope to make it easier for you to indulge your curiosity and seek out rare experiences wherever you go next. When I decided to go to Beirut, Lebanon, to visit my sister who was working there, people were horrified. It had a high travel advisory from the U.S. Department of State because of violence happening in certain parts of the country. But then on the other side of the coin, while in the Philippines, I was horrified to learn about how their government was handling a drug crisis. They were essentially just murdering anyone suspected of dealing drugs, even if they were totally innocent, and it was just a spiteful neighbor who reported them as a way of getting retribution for some perceived slight. There were no trials or anything. I think about when I decided to go guerrilla trekking in 2019. I made a very conscious decision to do it in Rwanda instead of Uganda, where the government has adopted extremely homophobic policies and where LGBTQ human rights activists have been murdered. I couldn't fathom going there as a gay traveler myself. While I would probably be safe as a foreigner, how could I justify spending travel dollars in a place that was actively persecuting my gay brothers and sisters? I feel like as a female, there are certain places I wouldn't feel comfortable either. Parts of the Middle East come to mind. That said, it's not as if things are perfect here in the United States. The last few years, we've had what was essentially a Muslim travel ban. Fortunately, President Biden put a stop to that on the day of his inauguration. But still, with all these questions we've had and continue to ponder, we thought it was a good idea to consult with a couple people who could help advise on how to navigate them in the future. First, we're talking with Anu Taranath, a teaching professor on issues of diversity, racial equality, and social change at the University of Washington. 
Dr. Taranath also consults with educational institutions, government agencies, nonprofits, and businesses on these matters. Dr. Taranath also recently wrote a book called Beyond Guilt Trips, Mindful Travel in an Unequal World. In it, she raises questions about how and why we might feel uncomfortable traveling to places where there is inequity and injustice, and how we can examine those feelings as we decide where to go. Anu, thank you for joining us today. Hi there. So nice to be here. We were talking about this also in terms of your book, Beyond Guilt Trips, Mindful Travel in an Unequal World. And the title sort of says it all. The world is a big place with lots of complicated questions and interesting destinations. And travelers have to navigate a lot of questions these days when deciding how, where, and when to travel. And we just sort of wanted to jump off on a general point, which is... What kinds of questions can travelers be asking themselves today when starting to think about possible destinations? Right. It's a great beginning question. The world is large and grand and immense and wonderful and really messed up all at once, <laughs> right? That's right. Absolutely. Uh, and there's no place on earth that I know of that isn't grappling either a little or a lot with issues of power, identity, belonging, human rights, who has more opportunity, who has less. So these are not simply destination-specific issues. These are what I've come to learn as human issues. I don't condone it, of course, but I am seeing it less located in X place or Y place and more as a condition of what it means to live in a complex, unequal, really fraught world together that is increasingly becoming unequal day by day, right? So I think any of us who are thinking about traveling, I would suggest we kind of start close to home and think about what are we noticing at home? What are we noticing in our communities? What have we been socialized to see? What have we not had to see, perhaps? What conversations are happening nearby? And what does that raise for us? What kind of feelings does that raise in us, right? All of this is part of developing, I think, a a more mindful traveling lens. You know, as I write in my book, traveling for me is not just about getting on a plane to go to Kenya or Nepal. Traveling is pretty much any time that we are interacting with people who are not us, whose lives might look different than ours. And one need not go far to think about issues of equity, inequity, rights, who has, who doesn't, right? All of these ideas are unfortunately, playing out much closer to home. And so any of these sort of travel conversations that we have for me really begins at home. Cultivating a traveling lens at home helps us think about what we can see when we are far away. Home is so familiar, right? And yet we are living really segregated lives, often with very little understanding of how different people's lives might look. These are people who live 5, 10, 15 miles away from us, right? I think oftentimes it's so much easier to see those differences when you're traveling in a foreign place. We just ignore them at home or don't even notice. Right. That's exactly why for me, as I've thought more about these issues, I've really started thinking that a traveling lens really does begin at home. We have so many examples of well-intentioned, mostly privileged people from the global north who travel abroad and for the first time think about poverty or for the first time think about women's issues or a range of things. And while I'm glad that they had that awakening far away from home, what does it mean that we don't really know each other's lives even at home, right? 
there's such a variety and a mix of what it means to be here, wherever that here is for one. And why is it that we think only that when we're going far, we're kind of becoming exposed to some of these broader social issues? I'm so curious and really passionate about broadening that conversation so we can think about social issues wherever we are in the world, whether I'm at home or I'm traveling abroad. Yeah, and I think that's such a good point. And here in the U.S. in history, there's plenty of issues. I think a lot of people have begun to realize that we're not perfect. It's not only other places and faraway destinations that have these kinds of social justice issues or inequities again. But what are some of the kinds of questions that might be thoughtful or provocative to ask ourselves when considering these other destinations where, again, there are maybe political policies that we don't agree with or gender-based violence or human rights violations of certain populations. How can we think about squaring that in our minds with the sort of questions that might lead us to making a decision? You know, the more that I learn, the more that I am convinced that political officials and leaders who enact policies, sometimes for their own benefit and gain, they don't often speak for regular, everyday people like you and I. All kinds of things have happened in this country over the last few years, and even previous to that, that I don't agree with, that has nothing to do with the ways that I live my life and that I seek to put into practice my own values. And if that is true for me here, that is true for millions of people around the world. Their government might not represent who they are as a people and what is valuable, meaningful, and critical for their communities. So I think kind of separating what a government does with the regular everyday people who live there is a good step for us. We have a lot of uh, practice seeing our own complexity, right? And we have less practice also extending that grace to people farther away. We feel like, oh, everybody in Cuba is X, everybody in Burma is Y. Right, we tend to categorize in broad swaths, yeah. Right, whereas, you know, we have a lot more nuance when we think of our own context because we're more immersed in it, because we're more invested, because we're more familiar, and because our story is implicated in it. And so we're very quick to say, oh, no, no, not all Americans, or no, no, that's not me, or that law was passed, but no, no, I don't agree. So we have a lot more space for dissent and nuance at home. And a traveling lens is really kind of exporting that nuance and grace elsewhere as well. So when I think about it in that way, my travels are less to engage with a government and their particular policies, although certainly I'm mindful of that, but it's to be able to meet people meet regular everyday people. It's to have conversations at the market. It's to eat new food. It's to soak myself in another context and to watch and listen with more openness. I think it's so interesting that you frame it that way too, Anu, because you talked about a little earlier, we sometimes do not always make ourselves as aware as possible of what's going on around us and the people around us in our own communities. This year more than most too, seeing as a lot of us have been sequestered at home with travel and lockdown restrictions and stuff. But then to broaden that sort of idea of, you know, actually looking at other people empathizing with them, 
asking what their day-to-day is and who they are. And then to take that with you when you travel to other places just sort of, for me, emphasizes the value of the interpersonal connections that travel can engender rather than simply, like you said, it's not a checklist and you're not going to engage with a government. You're going there to have experiences with people with cultures and with individuals. And that's the richest possible experience one can have when traveling. And I feel like to that point as well, in my experience, when I've been to places that later maybe I realized, oh, there's something shady going on here, or I'm getting feedback from editors who won't let me write about the place because it's maybe controversial in some way. I always think back to those conversations and interactions I've had with, again, real, authentic, normal people that are not you know, about the government and they have their own opinions and they most of the time do not agree with what's going on there. And I feel like I got such value out of being able to have those interactions. But am I supposed to now feel guilty about having gone there because of this other issue? I think there's a lot of questions of like guilt by association. I don't know if those are healthy questions or, you know, healthy feelings to have or not, but I think they're somewhat inevitable to come up. And I think if we just extend that framework, right, if I have not been for all that my government has done in the United States, do I bear burden of guilt because I live here? What does that mean, right? Guilt is so easy to spread and feel on one's own. You know, I think a lot about guilt and shame in order to have more clarity around joy and connection, actually. Guilt and shame, to me, are corroding emotions that can sometimes wake us up, right, which is great, but used as a panacea for everything, for all inequities, it doesn't really get us that far. Feeling guilty about who we are or where we might have gone stops the conversation. Guilt paralyzes our curiosity. It makes it really difficult to be open with the feelings, which might be hard to feel, that are coming up. It makes it hard to sit in discomfort. It makes it hard to have authentic, genuine conversations around sensitive topics that most of us haven't had much practice leaning into. Guilt doesn't help us. It becomes a gate, right? And it's too seductive to use. It's so easy to use, right? We've weaponized it in a really, I think, um, not very helpful way. Again, guilt can be this moment of awakening of, wait a minute, what, what have I done? Who am I? What does it mean for me to have what I have in such an unequal world, right? It can catalyze some important moments of conversation, but it's really critical to think what we do with that guilt after we feel it. How do we mobilize it into something more productive? That's what I'm really passionate about. As you move beyond that initial feeling of guilt, let's say, what are some of the ways that you can find action? Obviously, it seems like it would be situation specific and specific to each individual person. But what are some of the ways that travelers can keep their minds open beyond that initial feeling of guilt to make sure they do move beyond it? And if there is an action to take that they're open to doing so? Yeah, this is so much of what I'm exploring, as you know, in my book, Beyond Guilt Trips. The book is filled with a lot of my own traveling stories, as well as the stories of many travelers that I've met over the years who are also grappling, Eric, with this very question, right? How do we settle into something that feels unsettleable? You know, the fact that we live in an exceptionally unequal world should not be settling for any of us. We should all be up in arms around it. (laughs) So while that is true, 
it also does nothing for those beautiful connections that Catherine was mentioning that we travel to hopefully have. What is that kind of healthy middle space that, yes, absolutely acknowledges the power and privileges and advantages that I carry with me wherever I go, whether I am here in my home city of Seattle or whether I'm out and about internationally? None of those privileges or advantages go away. They often are exacerbated. So only rehearsing that over and over again when I am in Nicaragua or in Nigeria does nothing for me. On the other hand, pretending that who I am and what I have doesn't matter is naive. It's woefully naive. I'm looking for that middle space where we can be mindful of who we are and what we have, and also learn how to witness other people's lives well, right? But what does it mean to witness one another? I think our history is so fraught and this year of so much anguish around race in the United States because we have not learned as a culture and as a people how to actually hold one another's experience well. Or even to talk about it. You know, we have so few skills in what it means to witness, how to hold, how to be with one another. And none of those means I know how to fix it, right? If I could fix inequity, I would. I don't know how to fix inequity. Yeah, just inequity. snap your fingers, it's gone, right? Totally, no. <laughs> right. So if you or I don't know how to fix everything all at once, we will have to learn how to be able to sit with, be present to, and witness people's lives that might look different than ours. That, I think, is an art There's so much skill and nuance and grace and love and compassion in that. Does guilt come up? Sure. How could it not? But how do we hold that in addition to so many of the other emotions that may come up at those moments? That's what I think travel can really offer us. Again, one need not go far to have any of these realizations, but travel with an open lens to lives that are different than ours, right? And as you said, to see and witness lives that are different from ours and with an open lens. In your book, you talk about confirmation bias. And it got me thinking, too, about just for myself, once I really started traveling and going to new places that felt different from my own reality, it felt like such an exciting opportunity to learn about different ways of life, different ways of being, different ways of believing in things. But I do think that a lot of times it's hard to get into that sort of space or mentality for people maybe also who are newer to traveling. And there's this tendency to seek out places or people who just reconfirm or we think reconfirm what we already believe and not expose ourselves to new truths. So questions, again, we can ask or ways that we can try to avoid this. You know, the more people I talk to, the more I'm realizing that some of our discomfort around issues of race and power and equity and belonging and identity feel so complex because we ourselves have not grappled with these issues on a personal level. And, you know, going abroad or suddenly confronting lives that look different than ours can feel really destabilizing. It can, of course, sink us into guilt. It can do a range of things, but it also, in the best case scenario, asks us to look within. It asks us to grapple with who we are, what it means to be in community with one another, how we want to live, how much we need in this world, 
what is ours to share? It asks us to reflect on those kinds of questions, which again, the more people I talk to, the more I'm realizing so few of us have had practice answering those kinds of questions just on our own. And so no wonder we short circuit when we go abroad. Right. It's overstimulating in a way. Absolutely. Traveling lens isn't about how many miles you go. It's about how many layers you can uncover to actually get at more truth and clarity. There's a clean honesty in being able to say actually what's happening. We have a lot of noise in our world that prevents most of us from really listening deeply to ourselves and one another. A traveling lens for me is about getting into that space where you and I can hear each other, whether we're close by, whether we are meeting each other for the first time in a market somewhere far away, right? What does that mean to quiet the noise in society and quiet the noise in our minds so we can actually get more honest with ourselves and each other? That feels like such an important part of justice work for me. Absolutely. And, you know, a lens has two sides, though, right? There's a viewer and then the scene that they're viewing. But with travel and with going to other destinations, I think sometimes people, as you discuss in the book, have difficulty accepting the fact that they are also being seen and viewed and experienced by the people in the destination that they're visiting. And how does it feel to be, I don't know, perhaps viewed as representative, perhaps you're viewed as you know, a single monolithic representation of your race, your country, your gender identity, whatever it happens to be. And it's very hard for people, myself included, to put yourself out there for perhaps scrutiny or just to become aware that other people see you in a way that's different from yourself. And that's part of what's so interesting about travel. Yeah. How does travel make us rethink who we are based on how others are seeing us, right? Lots of Westerners, lots of white folks have had little practice in thinking about themselves in any other way besides an individual. Individualism is such an important concept in the West. And while I see some benefits of that, you know, some of the downsides of that is what does it mean if you've never had to think of yourself as part of a larger group? And suddenly when you're abroad, you are now being thought of as part of a larger group, right? Lots of travelers that I have been with have really struggled with that notion. No, no, I'm not like everyone else. And a group you might not identify with, like you're saying. But even we do that to the people we see in a destination, too. We group them all into one, generally. Right. And And that kind of race... It's totally fair that they should do that to us, really. Totally. Absolutely. You know, how race gets configured abroad sometimes very often looks really different than how race gets configured here. Here in the U.S., I am a small woman of color, and how people read me is so much of how they approach me. When I am abroad, I am myself. I'm still the same person, but I am read differently. I'm still read as American in some ways, but I'm also read as not that kind of an American. I'm not the white kind of American. I'm a brown American. I'm somehow different, and at times... I have loved what that feels like to not be clustered into lots of rowdy kind of ugly American stereotypes that are circulating. On the other hand, you know, the fact that I have a U.S. passport, I have leisure time, I have so many advantages in the world, that's also uncomfortable for me to hold, whether I'm a person of color or I'm white. 
And so I'm so curious uh, hearing from people around what does identity look like abroad and how does that make us feel? How does that sometimes close us off from these deeper conversations that we're having today? Or how can that humble us to stay open, refreshed, resilient, and present for what comes up? That's, I think, where the real glory happens, right? If you and I can note, boy, this is tough. Stuff is coming up for me, but here we are. Let's keep going. That is where we can actually do healing work together. I mean, what is justice if not healing? What does it mean to heal ourselves, right? And I think, too, while we've been not able to travel as much, now is a great opportunity, I believe, to think about this at home, practice sort of our travel lens on a more intimate level, practice asking some of these questions about our own communities or the community next door and start getting into that mindset in preparation for the future. Yes. You know, I bring to the travel industry a lot of my work around racial equity here in the U.S. And so these conversations that the travel industry often is having about who we are and who those others are far away are actually taking place, sometimes even more vociferously, at home in our offices, in our organizations, in our institutions, in our communities. And so once again, finding the links between here and there, us and them, wherever one is in the world, feels to me like our task. That is my work, actually, right? It's a big one. And it's really like many of the best ideas. It's easy to distill it to that simple communicable thought, right? And it's something that all of us are going to hopefully be practicing a lot more as we face this time of transition and figure out what it means for us when we are able to go out in the world again. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks so much, Eric. Thanks, Catherine. I think Anu's suggestion to practice honing our travel lens while at home is a great one and an exercise that would serve us all well, especially in these trying times. And she raised so many great questions that can help put into perspective each of our roles in this world. For some more concrete ways to put these ideas into practice, we look to Simon Lynch, Director of Sales for Luxury Travel Group, which is the parent company of Scott Dunn. As a conscientious travel operator, they've planned incredible trips for me throughout Morocco and Namibia. Simon's experience in the travel field is vast, especially concerning where the company sends clients. We caught up with him in London, where he is based, and asked him about the kinds of questions travelers need to pose and how they can make responsible choices when planning trips. So Simon, with the world changing so constantly, especially politically in many places, how do you take a look at your destinations and perhaps make adjustments to particular offerings? Are there things that play into what kinds of trips you'll sell in a place? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Delighted to be um, to chatting about this subject, one that's really close to our hearts here at Scott Dan. The first thing I would say is we're constantly reviewing. So whether it be a destination, a hotel group or a region, we're always looking at it. We're fortunate in that we have a team of 12 who are constantly focusing on this product area for us. They're looking at changes, they're looking at political dynamics, and they feed back to the various parts of the business to make sure that we're always looking at those key considerations, sustainability, diversity, impact on communities, and how really tourism can be a force for good, which is something we absolutely want to have as part of our ethos. One of the things that we take very seriously is trying to support good work where we see it, I'll give you an example. So 
For instance, in the Mediterranean, that's not a part of the world, right, where sustainability is at the forefront at the moment. I think of mega yachts and things like that, so it doesn't seem very <laughs> sustainable. <laughs> exactly right. So one of the destinations that we think are doing a really good job at the moment is Cyprus, which is something that you don't particularly hear about. And doing some phenomenal work around single-use plastic, around the environment, and around educating guests who visit Cyprus. And we want to support and shout about that. So it's not always necessary about the things that are in the news as such. We want to be caring, really, in our approach and make sure that we're making a difference to those businesses that are trying to do the right thing. So you'll probably hear me say this a fair bit as we talk is it's often about educating the people we work with as much as making big decisions about not working with someone. Right. To what you just said, are there examples of times when you've seen things like either human rights violations, LGBTQ plus issues, you know, social justice challenges that have come up that have caused either a shift in Scott Dunn's approach to a certain destination or a partner? And what have you done in those scenarios? We don't have a sort of tick list of the various things that, that are out there that we should be considering because there are so many and it's it's very nuanced in, in many destinations. Absolutely. So instead, we are continuously looking at what's going on in each country and trying to make determinations in that way. So, for example, it might be around disenfranchisement of communities through changes in development going on in a particular place or mm -hmm. local taxes and how they're affecting communities who are impacted by tourism. So a myriad of different points that we look at, not just one. To kind of just delve into one that you raised, though, which was LGBTQ+, you might recall a few years ago there was the boycott which took place, led by really Hollywood, attached to the, the Dorchester collection. The hotels are owned by the Sultan of Brunei, and there were issues with, I believe, instituting Sharia law in Brunei that Absolutely. then got raised yeah. to a high profile by various celebrities. And many took the decision to stop working with that collection of hotels. Um, we did not do that. We mm -hmm. continued to work with the Dorchester collection, but we sat down with them and asked them to take us through what their stance was currently and where they intended to be after reviewing their practices. And we felt that they responded really effectively in communicating with both us and with their more general customers about their stance. And ultimately, we found that they had a very positive LGBTQ plus stance, which wasn't being reported. And we felt that there were other hotel groups out there that perhaps were not doing that, who had um, other ownership structures, which could also be called into question. So our ethos really is rather than just sort of cutting a supplier or a destination off our list, what we instead try to do is give those destinations or suppliers the opportunity to make a change, to show us what they're trying to do, take us through their pathway, whether it be on sustainability or political issues, and then we make an evaluation. Um, so it's about really it being an education rather than just straightforward boycotting. I think that sounds like such a smart way to go because I feel like it's more of a chance for a learning opportunity or a teaching opportunity and a, and a chance for evolution and for positive growth and change as opposed to striking an entire country or an entire business off your list. If there are ways to make it more of a positive partnership or more of a positive situation, then I think that's a great opportunity to take. So what do you or your team do when someone has a grave reservation about 
what's happening with the locals in a place, perhaps? Do you get feedback from clients who are concerned about things like maybe the protests in Hong Kong or the Uyghur persecution in China? How do you talk to clients about these places they're visiting that might have troubling things going on? Absolutely, yes. We do hear from guests all the time around uh, challenges and issues that are going on in destinations that they're going to. And they're always eager to understand how we approach those issues. The first thing we would do, if we take, for example, Myanmar, we look at what's going on in the ground and what's going on within the tourism sector in that destination and how we can impact positively with the guests that we send there. We're very fortunate at Scott Dunn in that we send over 30,000 people people a a year away and we have enormous responsibility about where we send them and of course we want to make sure we do the right thing so the first thing we do is we take it as the responsibility of us as a tour operator to inform the guest not all of them would be aware of the issues going on in Myanmar we talk to them and we explain to them what's going on and then we explain to them how we're approaching it so in that particular instance We don't work with government hotels. We only work with small, independently owned hoteliers. And we focus on hotels and uh, suppliers who are doing really good things in their communities. Our approach really is to think locally and to take that to the next level when there are challenges going on in that destination. I think over to Tanzania and Kenya, for example, where there are challenges around LGBTQ plus issues. Right. However... There's a group of hotels over there called the Asilla Lodges who are doing exceptional work and great local projects to empower the communities around there by educating them and also working across diversity challenges, sustainability challenges and empowerment. We want to celebrate that and support that. So we tell our guests what great work is going on in those destinations. And for some, they think, no, I still don't wish to go to that destination. And others reflect and make an evaluated, more educated choice. So we do try to do our absolute utmost in not shying away from the issue, but to instead just give them a rounded view. I think, too, in my experience, sometimes when I've been in a place where there are these questionable practices or policies or things going on that I did not know about before, being in that place offered me the opportunity to learn more about the world, learn more about that place. And then, you know, I was able to then tell more people about this issue or spread the word in a way that I feel like could actually be positive for that place and for future potentially progress that could be made. I think about going to Uganda. I didn't know that they had life imprisonment for being gay, essentially. And I talked to a lot of people while I was there because I was interested what their feelings were on this. And no one on the ground, so to speak, agreed with that policy. And I learned about some organizations in the cities that were really fighting against it that I thought were so interesting. And I would never have had the opportunity to learn about if I didn't realize that this was a thing. Absolutely. I mean, there are multiple sides to a lot of these debates and by being in a destination you get to see what people on the ground are thinking they may not even know about the issue or there may be a dimension to it that's not being reported in our home destinations or it may be that actually people want to know what our view is one of the things we've talked about in the past is the value of getting out there and meeting local people on the ground and that might be as simple as having a local guide with you which is something i've always been a real advocate for and actually talking to them about political challenges in a country or issues around the environment or and what's going on actually a huge amount can be exchanged in both directions there and i think that's enormously valuable to take back to the uk or 
or the US or, or wherever to actually explain what you're seeing on the ground. And that's done in, in both ways, right? And it's a really powerful force. One of the great things I love about, about travel really is that sharing of ideas and understanding about our own worlds. That's obviously one of the most enriching experiences that travel can be is really having a chance to interact with people in the destination because they are the destination ultimately. And as you mentioned, we talked previously about how actually having a local guide who is empowered to talk to you about basically anything can really transform your experience of a destination that you might have prejudged before you'd even gotten there. It's also a good way of making sure that your tourism dollars directly benefit the community that you're visiting. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people just sort of piece their trip together themselves using various websites. And one of the things that tends to get missed out from that approach is that guide, that interaction with somebody local. And it's something I'm a big advocate for and something that Scott Dunn is a big advocate for as well. We tend to focus on guides who are incredibly experienced in the politics of a country, its history, its economy, and what's going on now in that destination, which we find that a lot of our guests are very engaged with and really want to understand what's happening. We absolutely ensure that they can speak freely and talk about the issues that are going on. And the thing that I find is a year after you've been to a destination, you probably don't necessarily remember that great bar you went to or restaurant, but you will really, really remember that interaction you had with your guide. And it's something we hear back from our guests again and again, that they're really thankful that they had that time to share with someone who was able to just give them their take on the philosophy of that particular place. So yes, it's absolutely something that we're real advocates for. I think, you know, having book travel both ways, just online putting together my own trip, but also having local guides, it really does make clear what an extra dimension it can have and that it's a relationship that can also impact both people involved, the traveler, of course, but also the guide. One experience that comes to my mind is I was in Vietnam, I'd say almost a decade ago, and my guide just turned to me while we were driving out to a village, driving out of Hanoi, and, and said, you know, what do you think about President Obama? And I said, oh, he's great. He's my president. Um, you know, he hasn't been in the job very long at this point, but I'm super interested to see what he'll do. And then he asked me, if you didn't like what he was doing, could you write about it? And I said, <laughs> I've had that question. Too. That's right. I think a lot of us have, like, if you don't like what's going on in your country, are you allowed to say something about it? And that was just so illuminating on a number of levels because it opened up our conversation about what it's like there in Vietnam and their experience. And they were just as curious about my experience and what my home was like as I was about theirs. So I remember that afternoon perfectly. And as you said, it was because of that personal interaction with someone sharing their home with me. Yeah, yeah. it's so important. I think it's a really powerful tool for when people travel and really that two-way communication is just important. It's not about just us learning about a destination. It is the other way as well. Right. I have to agree as well. And with Scott Don, you are having private guides. So I would also mention that as a difference between getting in a tour group where you're like one of 20 people and they're just giving you these sort of... Right. You're not um, following a flag. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> following a flag, you're not really going to get that one-on-one -on -one time with someone. But when I have had opportunities where I am one-on-one -on -one with someone, I think about being in Cuba or I think about in Oaxaca even, hire, you know, finding a local guide to hire and drive us to all these places and getting that time just even in being in the car in transition between destinations, you might be driving for 30 minutes and instead of sitting in silence, we're chatting and you're getting to know what their experience is life and they're getting to know what my experience and worldviews are like. And it's so fascinating. 
So, Catherine, I think what you're saying is sort of what we were getting at earlier, which is that if you do want to have an impact and have a positive experience or perhaps even affect positive change, it's about having a conversation, not a boycott, not a, a shutdown of views, but it Absolutely. is about interaction. That's our ethos, ultimately, is trying to get an understanding, really, of what's going on in that destination and likewise understanding what some of the local challenges are and evaluating it in that way rather than doing a hard stop or some kind of boycott. And if I could offer one piece of advice too, I would say that to me, it feels very valuable to have these kind of interactions and conversations as early as possible in a trip. I wouldn't wait to plop it in the middle of your vacation or at the end because you're going to miss out on some of the nuances and insight that might have been so helpful throughout the whole trip. So I really like when I can like hit the ground running immediately and you might be tired or jet lagged, but I think when I've been able to get to a place and on the first day I have someone taking me around like I did with Scott Dunn and Fez in Morocco, we spent our first day with a guide and it was so valuable and gave me such a new, wonderful sort of lens to look at my next three weeks of being in Morocco through. So I think doing it as as soon as possible can be very valuable. Fantastic. And I was going to ask then, Simon, as well, do you feel like clients, customers themselves are getting more savvy and on their own wanting to delve a bit deeper into trying to be truly conscious and ethical with their travel choices? Like they're not just looking to you to book a luxurious holiday for them, but that they have real opinions or requests that that are maybe specific to the destination or their interests and values, say wanting to stay somewhere that does not use single-use plastics or asking to stay in a place that is locally owned and engages deeply with the community. And if they don't ask those questions, do you all have sort of ways of steering them toward partners or places with those values? There's a really interesting pivot going on, I would say, that's been it's been going on for a little while now, but it's accelerating. And it's being driven, you know, here at Scott Dunn, we're really fortunate in that we have a real solid background with families. It's the the sort of teenagers and young kids that have been driving the narrative here in terms of making sure that their parents book the right destinations in the right way and delve deeper in terms of the places that people are staying. So we've found that um, actually parents are asking more about how the particular place they're going to is looking after the environment and what its sustainability credentials are. But it's being driven by the kids. They're the ones who are... Oh, thank goodness for those kids. They're truly the future. Exactly, right. (laughs) it's It's really powerful. It's really exciting. And it's something that we are really pleased about. In terms of do we nudge guests when they don't mention it? We do to an extent. We'll absolutely explain why we've chosen a particular hotel and often we'll dial up the sustainability credentials of that particular place. The moment we do that, most people react very positively and want to know more. And they really want to get under the skin of, so how is the hotel doing that? What are their policies? How does it all work? So it may not be on the tip of the tongue of everyone, but once it's raised, it generally becomes quite an engaging point and people do want to understand what's happening and it informs their purchasing decisions once they're told about it. That's really reassuring too, that they also don't just sort of take whatever credentials are printed on the card, but actually ask follow-up questions about it yeah, and ask absolutely. the details. Simon, if we can turn to the personal just for a moment. Okay. Um, you know, you're a, a very experienced traveler. I'm sure you've been lots of places over the years. Have you visited certain destinations or been with certain partner companies that 
have made you uncomfortable or that you did raise issues with? And we're not asking to name names. We're just more interested in how you personally dealt with maybe the uncomfortable aspects of travel in destinations where, you know, some of these issues were present and whether you were able to effect some sort of positive change. Yeah, okay. I think it's a really good question. You know, as the company I work for, Scott Dunn Grows, um, you know, we really feel that we've got a deep responsibility to support what's going on out there that's really good but there are destinations that have got more work to do right including you know our two countries too i would say (laughs) absolutely and as hopefully we move into a post-covid world i think people are going to be a lot more savvy in terms of making these decisions around where their money goes as the travel world begins to emerge from all of this i think if i could highlight a couple Initially, I think the cruise industry has got a lot more work to do, particularly in ensuring that as much money flows into local communities as possible. You talked earlier about, you know, following the flag when you're your guide. And I think the cruise industry sort of dispenses a few thousand people into a place for a few hours and then everybody ups and leaves again and there's not a great deal left behind. I think there's definitely more work that could be done there to ensure that it really is a a force for good in, in particular places around the world. On a more personal level, though, I think parts of the, and not all, but parts of the the Middle East and the Gulf region have got some work to do in terms of, of their employees within the tourism sector and how they empower their employees. And if you've been to some of those countries, you can see that there's definitely some challenges there. We are seeing some good work coming out of the, the Middle East and the Gulf with the hospitality sector, but we've got quite a bit of work to do. I think they would agree. Again, super interesting potential case study because obviously so much more travel traffic goes through those three hubs in Abu Dhabi, Dubai and Doha than ever before. And so one might hope that with the influx of people from all over the world and various cultures and travel cultures, that change might be in the air depending on what those travelers demand from the destination when they get there. Yeah, a bit more equity, maybe. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you've been out there, you'll see it's skyscrapers going up everywhere. And there's a real boom in the in the hospitality tourism sector. We're not just looking for trickle down. I, um, one of the things that we spoke about before is, um, as Scott done, we're paying a lot of attention to now ask who is on your management team in these hotels and in these communities. And we want to make sure that there's more local faces represented and actually have decision-making power rather than sort of Westerners being flown in who kind of run everything. We want to absolutely ensure that these are locally run endeavours and we're taking some baby steps in the right direction. As you said, there is a lot of work to be done, but it all starts with awareness and asking the questions and being curious. So it's wonderful to hear that you all are doing so much to kind of encourage guests in that direction and make sure you're really thinking about the partners you work with. Thank you. Much appreciated. Yeah. Thank you so much, Simon. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. I was happy to hear Simon notice his clients getting more proactive in asking these questions. I think one of the big takeaways from these conversations is the value of local engagement. Even if you're going to a destination that might have questionable practices at play, there are ways to ensure your tourism dollars are benefiting the right people. I totally agree. There can be no positive change without these interpersonal connections, and writing off entire countries and populations is only likely to have the opposite effect. It's true. And there's a lot of work to do, but I do believe that as travelers, we can be part of the solution. For more information about Dr. Anu Charanath and her book, as well as Scott Dunn's trips, visit ConsciousTravelerPod.com. 
And check out at Conscious Traveler Pod on Instagram for some of Catherine's photography from Myanmar. We'd like to thank Matthew Carpenter, who composed our music. <laughs>